This is their new hoax. But you know, we did something that's been pretty amazing. We're all feeling the impact of coronavirus. Today, Qantas stood down 20,000 people, and of course, they're joining a long list. If I get corona, I get corona. At the end of the day, I'm not going to let it stop me from partying. Well, why, why the big secret? People are smart. They can handle it. A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Welcome to Nursing Review's new podcast. Each episode, we'll look at a different aspect of the pandemic, tackling myths, talking research, and keeping you informed. Right, and then I see the disinfectant, where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost... My name is Connor Burke, and this is the Nursing Review Coronavirus Podcast. I think most of us have experienced what I like to call COVID rage. I've termed it as annoyance at perceived unthinking actions by our fellow humans as we have changed our actions due to the pandemic. For example, when you're walking around your local park and the person coming towards you makes no effort to socially distance. Or in my case, when runners cut in front of you so tightly that you can feel their breath as they pass. You might be the opposite to me and not too worried and you might enjoy the space as you see fit and as is your right. I guess. Previously, restrictions dictated what we could and couldn't do, where we could and couldn't go. But it always has struck me as weird that we're all exercising, walking and living in that same tight space. Maybe this is just a problem of city living. And joining me today to talk about the new norm that is physical distancing and how we reconcile that with city living is Ben Beck, Senior Research Fellow at the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine at Monash University. Ben, how are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. Ben, um, how have you gone? I mean, we've all kind of uh, opened up a bit and we're not in lockdown as such anymore, but how have you gone over that period with physical distancing and, and walking and, and being in that new space? Yes, I think we've seen some really big shifts in in mobility and how people are moving about their local neighbourhoods and their cities uh, over the last couple of months. So when we think back to the middle of March, uh, when we did really start with a lot of these lockdown measures, um, at that stage, the majority of people were, were staying at home and the majority of movement was very much localised around uh, local neighbourhoods. And at that stage, um, I think my experience has reflected that of many Australians, which was that a lot of the spaces that we have for moving about our neighbourhoods on foot and by bike are, are very limited and oftentimes fairly cramped. And so at this time, it became very clear that it was hard to maintain physical distancing practices uh, in when we were moving about our, our local neighbourhoods and on our, on our local streets by, uh, by bike or, or on foot. And, and certainly that was something I experienced. Um, I've got a, a one-year-old son and uh, pushing him around in the pram was difficult. I, I was forced to cross over onto the other side of the road at times and um, and move around people and, and actually walk on the road at times to actually make sure that I was adhering to physical distancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, those challenges have continued. We've still seen a lot of movement about our local neighbourhoods um, and, and that's continued over the last couple of months. And so we're still seeing these challenges associated with the the very limited street space that we give to people on bike on and on foot. Uh, and I think as we've started to uh, see some of these um, physical, well, the, the, the lockdown measures relaxed, what we're starting to see is 
some challenges that we face with mobility and the best example here is public transport. With public transport, we know we're down to around 10 to 18% uh, of normal capacity when we think about uh, how people will move about their cities and particularly when people start to return to work. And obviously, with that huge reduction in capacity, those people need to be able to move in some way. And so we then have an opportunity here where people can start to take up walking and cycling or the negative alternative is that they resort to the use of the private car. And even with uh, people going back to work and only a very small proportion of people uh, physically attending their, their place of work, we've seen huge increases in traffic volumes and congestion on our roads in the last couple of weeks. Um, again, highlighting the need for us to be able to support walking and cycling now and into the future. Mm-hmm. Um, if we can take a little kind of uh, overview of, of what our country stacks up, like how do we, you know, stack up against other countries with the infrastructure for cycling, walking, etc. Um, we've got so much space, you know, compared to other cities. Um, are we just similar to, you know, London, Paris, all these other places? Yes, it's a great question. So I think if we if we think pre-COVID, we were well behind the eight ball already. Um, we have a very car-centric culture. Uh, And as a result of that, we've had very little investment in walking and cycling infrastructure. Uh, What we've seen as a result of COVID is that a number of cities across the world have rapidly mobilised to uh, try and support walking and cycling. Uh, For example, we've seen 650 kilometres of infrastructure um, rolled out or in the process of being rolled out in Paris. We've seen responses across the US, in Portland and in New York, um, in parts of Canada. So we're seeing cities rapidly mobilised to roll out initially uh, kind of temporary or pilot infrastructure. So these are kind of rapid um, investments that can be made uh, in, in a temporary way. It can be as simple as traffic cones or temporary planter boxes that can try and give additional street space to those on bike or on foot. We've seen huge uh, investments in the UK in in order of uh, £2 billion to support walking and cycling. New Zealand's moved rapidly to support these modes. And so Australia is is lagging well behind. Mm -hmm. We have had some small victories. Um, In New South Wales, there was an announcement of a $15 million funding package to support uh, the rapid rollout of walking and cycling. And this was Uh, well-designed in that there were um, approval for projects up to $100,000 that could be rolled out fairly quickly uh, and approval for projects up to $1 million for larger-scale projects that will support these modes of transport into the future. Mm -hmm. We've also seen some announcements from local councils, including uh, the City of Sydney, Mm -hmm. uh, the City of Brisbane and the City of of Melbourne, who have all announced um, funding packages to to be able to support the rollout of, of these kind of Uh, infrastructure measures, but we need this to be uh, far greater investment and and ensure that it's delivered across cities and particularly in an equitable fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, that is an issue because I actually live in the city of Sydney and um, the uh, Lord Mayor and and other politicians did announce some extra cycle lanes or some, um, you know, movement of uh, parking and so forth. But just today, actually, when I came back from my kind of walk, 
there was a, a letter from a, a citizen, just a regular person living around, that they were upset that the parking is going to be reduced for people who live near these cycle lanes. Um, how do we find that um, happy medium going into the future? Because I think maybe uh, earlier on in the in the pandemic, the focus was all more on health and um, the economy. But now that it's calmed down a bit, we're going to be having these conversations. How do we strike that? How do we convince people, don't worry about your car park, we need to open up and have people walking and not just driving and getting the bus to work? Yeah, it's probably the, the million-dollar question. So um, it, it's a real challenge. I think parking is one of the key challenges that we face when thinking about reallocating road space. Um, obviously, car parking is the most obvious choice uh, in terms of being able to remove that, that need for parking. Um, the the answer to your question is, is complex. Uh, I think the, the first part is that we need to be able to demonstrate and provide examples of how beneficial this kind of infrastructure is. On face value, as an individual, as a resident, it might seem that you have been taking or taking car parking away is, is seen as a negative to you. But what we know is that there are huge benefits to the community uh, when we when we think about um, walking and cycling. Um, and coming back to the point that you made around the, the drivers that we have at the moment, these kind of interventions are hugely beneficial for health. They are hugely beneficial um, for connectedness, so how, how connected we feel with our neighbourhood. Um, and they are hugely beneficial for the economy. Um, we often face challenges from uh, traders and traders' associations when thinking about the removal of car parking outside of business areas. Mm. But we have very strong evidence that um, actually supports the fact that local spending increases uh, when you remove car parking and replace that with infrastructure to support walking and cycling. So the evidence is very strong in support of these interventions um, uh, across a multitude of different factors. Uh, we will still face the challenge that you've raised around the perception of the removal of car parking. But what we do need to do is make sure that we, and, and I use that very inclusively, but um, particularly from a local government perspective, work with our local communities to ensure that we have strong communication of the benefits of these. Um, if we can start to roll out pilot projects and demonstrate the benefits of this infrastructure to our local communities, that'll also increase the uh, the positive community perception of, of support uh, of these uh, of this infrastructure. Mm. And I'm just thinking as well that uh, you mentioned the increase in, in personal car use, but the governments have been working hard to kind of help people, you know, decide to come back to work and let them know that they can do so safely. So again, safely. So again, here in New South Wales, Gladys Berejiklian has announced that they will be putting on more trains and more buses so that people can socially distance on these trains and buses. So they're obviously trying to help in one aspect, but like you say, then there's going to be more cars, um, buses, trains on the road. Not good for the environment, and you know maybe not good for us in general. Yes, that's exactly right. I think. We, we have to think about mobility as, uh, as, as a whole citywide kind of integrated network. Um, and certainly public transport is a key component to that. We know that um, when people shift from car to public transport, that they see um, significant increases in physical activity levels. And that's commonly associated with the walk from home to um, the, the the public transport and then from the uh, the, the 
um, end of the public transport trip to their place of, of work. Um, so there's huge benefits in investing in, in public transport. Um, obviously, as you've described, that's being challenged at the moment. And if we do have very large shifts to private car-based travel, we are going to have absolutely crazy congestion on our roads. But in addition to that, we are also going to have significant negative and, and potentially irreversible health consequences associated with that shift and the increase in physical inactivity. We've obviously got a huge physical inactivity problem in Australia as it stands. Mm. Uh, and in terms of the long-term health of our population, the long-term happiness and connectedness of our communities, we need to be investing in walking and cycling infrastructure and we need it urgently. You were, and now this is a, over a month ago, I'd say, but you were more than one of more than 100 Australian health and transport experts who signed an open letter calling on governments to enact urgent measures to support safe walking and cycling, so, you know, to help with social distancing, but health overall during the pandemic. Do we need to kind of go to schools and start teaching kids just like we're teaching kids to wash hands and really re-educating society that we need to wash hands and think about how we act when we're sick? Do we need to do this as well, explain that you know, walking and thinking about how we get to work and school is is the way to go forward? Yes, I think uh, it, it's one avenue. It's only one part of the puzzle. Um, we know at the moment that the infrastructure that exists uh, is inadequate in, in providing a, a really safe and connected journey for children and potentially their parents as well um, to enable them to, to use active modes of transport to get to school. Uh, and in addition to that, obviously, parental concerns around safety are still a big barrier in children either walking or riding to school. So this is very multifactorial, but mm. the obvious obvious choice here, even though it is the most complex, is, uh, is, is really, again, coming back to this infrastructure. And so, yes, we definitely need to educate children and their parents around the importance um, of using these modes of transport and getting to school. But in addition to that, we also need to really invest in infrastructure. And again, if we think about this infrastructure as being very neighbourhood focused, very local community focused, we, what we want here is, is, is infrastructure that can support children getting easily and safely uh, to and from school. Um, and so this is not necessarily just about cycling infrastructure. This is about potentially lowering um, default urban speed limits to, to 30 kilometres an hour on, on local streets. Uh, it's about widening foot, footpaths, things like that that are, um, are really going to make a difference to, to children getting to and from school. But yes, it's a very important piece of this puzzle. Um, and in addition to that, if, if we can try and create these opportunities for physical activity and getting to, to and from school, we know that we can support these behaviours. We're setting up healthy behaviours in children that will hopefully have lifelong benefits for their health. I'm just wondering, as the lockdown has been eased and we are noticing people starting to go back to offices, go back to work, has there been sort of any anecdotal evidence that people are choosing to, you know, skew from public transport and maybe walk or cycle to work or it's too early to say? There is a little bit of evidence that we are seeing some, some shifts towards uh, walking and, and cycling. Um, it's probably a little bit early uh, to, to really see differences because we still don't have um, really substantial uh, volumes of people travelling to and from work. 
Um, the weather in southern states has also challenged that. Obviously, we're heading mm. into or are in winter, um, and, and so that's challenged that as well. Um, but it's something that we need to monitor, um, and uh, it's something, obviously, that we need to, to invest in across Australia. Mm. Well, hopefully, the after the economy and now that the pandemic is easing slightly, the government can get to, uh, to more ways we can get out there and be healthy. Ben Beck, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Connor.